my slides seem to be working, where I brought a hard copy. <laughs> and, and I brought my computer, and I said to Carrie, if the hard copy fails for whatever reason, and this doesn't work, I may ask for my computer. I also brought my phone. Um, <laughs> So I can call for help uh, if needed. But uh, so good to be here. Can I have five or six people who are willing to pray for me, for us as we got here? Yeah, mm. so good. Let's pray. But I, again, I just want to acknowledge we uh, we had 24 hours of prayer as part of this 21 day prayer journey that we've been on. Uh, we had 24 hours of prayer, and many people uh, were here for at least an hour. Um, Yesterday, starting yesterday morning. Um, and, and can I tell you um, that um, as someone who's about to preach, there is a palpable difference in this place. Uh, and I just want to recognize that uh, So let's pray. The first thing I want you just just to do, just to pray in your heart, just to ask the Lord to speak to you again. To touch your heart and your mind, your spirit. Lord, we started today by singing the song. Lord, we need you. Every hour, we need you. Jesus, forgive the many hours that we don't acknowledge that fact. We are in desperate need of you. I ask, Lord, right now, you'd open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts and our minds to what you want to say, God. Lord, we've joked about it, but I, in all seriousness, surrender the notes and the the plan to you, Jesus. Do whatever you want to do. In your name, amen. Well, some of you know that we started a series that uh, is not going to get wrapped up in a few short weeks, but it's called 2020 Vision. And we started a series last fall called Back to the Future, in which we were explaining as pastors an encounter and an event and something that the Lord had put on our heart that he was calling us uh, as pastors, but also as a church, uh, back to a vision that God had given this place. And I think even that was a wording of something that, that was a dream in, in God's heart for Wellspring over a hundred years ago. And God's calling us in a renewed way to that. And so Pastor Rick started this series on this 2020 vision talking about the passage of Scripture 
that Jesus read at the beginning of his ministry that, that so marked Rick, it so marked Wellspring, and so marked that, that previous season. And it was still not only a manifesto of the vision of Jesus, but it's a, it's a manifesto of the heart of God for us. And so he began this, and then we started looking, and we started just diving into a little bit more and breaking down what this 2020 vision is, or that we continue going back to the future. And so we started and said, let's break down and let's just discover the, each part of the vision, which we're going to do not only just for the next few, few weeks, but over this year. And so we started with this phrase that is the beginning of the vision, that we, and that means you and I and we as Wellspring individually and collectively, that we are catalysts of spiritual renewal and revival that we are catalysts of spiritual renewal of revival. So we started out saying, what is a catalyst? You guys, anyone remember that? We started talking about what is a catalyst? And we just use this working definition is that a catalyst is an agent of change. A catalyst is something or someone that God uses to bring about change. It's, it's to spark a catalytic transformation and movement that spreads that activates a change. And so when we talk about this last week, we said, so that's a catalyst that God calls us to be catalysts. So what is a spiritual catalyst? What does that look like? And when we started looking at that, we said this, we said, you catalyze what you carry. Wherever you are, wherever you go, there you are, right? And whatever's inside of you, you bring as a catalyst into the environment around you. And spiritual catalysts, they're carrying what God has put inside them, what God has given them, what God has put on their lives to bring about spiritual change and spiritual transformation. So you catalyze what you carry. You know that to be true, and we know that to be true. So we looked at three hallmarks of spiritual catalysts. The people that God has used time and time again, unlikely people in unlikely places to do amazing things and unlikely things that God has used. And there's three things overall that as I look at mark the life of spiritual catalysts throughout history. And the first one is the presence of God. That people who are spiritual catalysts, whether they ever get named in the annals of history on earth or not, spiritual catalysts have always been people who are hungry for and pursue the presence of God. That the presence of God marks their life, not only what they carry, but what they are hungry and pursuing and for. The second thing is prayer. That spiritual catalysts are people of prayer. They are committed to it. They believe in it. They are are so trusting and hopeful in what God can do and in the presence of God that they are praying in heaven. So we looked at that. And the last thing we didn't have actually get time to, to look at last week is purpose. Purpose. So presence, prayer, and purpose. And so uh, I'm not going to get into purpose today. That will be another thing where we're talking about potentially doing a, a podcast just on purpose in that way. Uh, but I will just say this. Pr- purpose is about life focus. The people who are catalysts not only believe and, and pursue the presence of God, not only are people of prayer and pray in changes, but they understand that they were created on purpose and for a purpose. Every person in this room, every person outside this room is not a mistake, no matter what science is being taught lately. You are not a collection of chemicals. You were created in the image of God on purpose 
and for a purpose. Your life has meaning. And spiritual catalysts say, no matter what it is, whether anyone else finds out about it, I know my purpose. I want you to look at someone next to you and look them in the eye and say, I want you to say, first thing, you are a catalyst. And I, now, secondly, you're not done yet. I want you to look them in the eye and say, you were created on purpose and for a purpose. That's good. Even if they don't know what it is, even if you don't yet fully know what it is, God has a purpose for your life. And then when we live in the place of presence and we're dependent on prayer, I believe that God will unfold. And can I just say, one of our good friends, Carrie, my good friend, said usually God's purposes are more unfold than they are foretold. Someone get that? Most often God's purposes for your life they unfold as you pursue him rather than they're foretold and you figure it all out. God's purpose for your life. So we're going to continue. So if, if we're called to be catalysts of spiritual renewal and revival, and we've talked about what is a catalyst that you catalyze what you carry, that if we're going to be spiritual catalysts to bring change about in, in our world, in, in wherever God leads us, we looked at those three things, but let's, Focus on that next bit. We're not just called to be catalysts and spiritual catalysts, but we are called to be catalysts of spiritual renewal and revival. So then that should lead us to the next question. What is spiritual renewal and revival? There are a lot of words for these things in our uh, in our language and over the years of history. We have words like outpouring. We have words like awakening. We have, uh, for, you know, words like that. But we are going to use, we've been using and have used those, these two words of renewal and revival. And I think that there are a lot of adjectives to describe the movement of God amongst his people. But we're going to focus on these things because we want to be, and we believe we're called to be catalysts for spiritual renewal and revival. There are a lot of catalysts in our culture that are bringing about change, that are impacting our world. But we believe that as charged by God, that we're called to bring spiritual renewal and revival. But what does that look like? Now, can I just tell you, there's a lot of smarter people out there than I am that are going to give you probably better definitions. I'm just going to give you the revised Butterfield version right now, okay? Is that good? You don't really have a choice. (laughs) But you can just say no, or can we please hear from those smarter people, Kevin? But I just want to throw this out here. These are my working definitions of what renewal and revival is about. The first thing is this. Renew, that, even that word in our culture. It's to be made like new again or to return to an original state. That's renewal. Revival is to revive when dead things come to life. So put these together in a spiritual sense that God, is, I believe, is out there, is to go renewal, is when the Holy Spirit renews our love for Jesus and sets us on fire for him. Renewal 
It's to be made like new again, that, that our hearts would become to a place that uh, we would be renewed in him and for him and unto him. And then I'll, I'll break down revival. Revival is when the Holy Spirit work in us overflows and spreads to the rest of the world. So let me bring that back again, and then I'll illustrate it a little bit more. Renewal is when the Holy Spirit renews our love. When I say our, I'm talking about the people of God, you and me in churches, people who said they put their faith and trust in Christ. However you want to define it, people who are part of, they would say, I am a Christ follower. I am a Christian. It's renewal is when the Holy Spirit works in us and among us. And then it renews our love for Jesus and then sets us on fire for him. And then revival is when what God's doing in us goes viral. It spreads to the rest of the world. Both of these things, both renewal and revival, just so you know that we are catalysts for them, but they are uniquely, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's usually birthed out of prayer and God's people seeking and surrendering again to God in a special way. It is not a work of a man or a woman. Do you understand that? Does God use men and women? Absolutely. But it is God doing the work. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not a work of a man or a woman or even a a place or a church alone. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in and through those. It's it's more than just an empty work. It's more than just emotionalism. It's more than just kind of, you know, man-made passion in response to a really good message or a good worship set or something like that. Not that those things are necessarily bad when we respond in those ways, but when we're talking about what is spiritual renewal and spiritual revival, this is a work of the spirit of the living God, not of man. Always in cooperation with mankind, because that's God's heart all the time. I love it when God just shows up, when he just moves sovereignly, when he does something apart from us. But can I tell you, his heart is to actually do it in us and through us. I don't understand it, and I argue with God regularly. I think it's the most inefficient plan in the world. But he doesn't care about efficiency. He cares about relationship. And he's always been passionate about using those people that he created on purpose and for a purpose to bring about his purposes in a way that is way beyond our natural ability. And that's what spiritual renewal is like. So let me give it to you this way, renewal and revival, and we'll look in the word a little bit about these two things. Renewal is kind of like a marriage. Carrie and I are married. April 26th, 1997. Did I get that right? Okay. That's good. Wow, that sounds like a long time ago. Wow. We got married. That's not the day we fell in love. Do you know what what date that was? (laughs) I do. It was like a bolt of lightning in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) October 20th. No, I... But we got married then, and you know what? Carrie and I, there's times when we can renew our vows. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. But there's times of renewal in marriage 
where not only is the commitment and the vow and the covenant renewed, but and that that's a good thing. But there's times when our hearts are renewed. There's times when when our our love, even though we are committed to each other and we love each other, our love may grow just a little familiar or a little bit stale or a little bit boring. I know no one else in this room has ever experienced that. I've seen that. But that can happen. It's, I know it's my fault. It's not hers, but it, it can happen. And there's times when that, that love though, that affection gets renewed. Does that make sense? When then it, it's like when we were, we first fell in love, like we all, we want to do is hang out together and spend time together. And we, you know, even back then, I, this is so on I was so in love with Carrie that I actually like talking on the phone with her. Hallmark of true love. <laughs> and we spent all our time together and we just loved being with each other. And it wasn't even about sometimes our, our conversation, but it was just about being near each other and being with each other. And there's times in the life of the church where that is so powerful when our first love gets renewed in Christ. It's like when the, the spirit of the Lord said to the church in Revelation, he goes, I hold, you've, you've done amazingly well, but this is what I hold against you. You've lost your first love. We're still married. We're still committed, but you're not in love with me anymore. Come back and let's renew that love. And that's what renewal is. It's when Jesus shows up in such powerful ways and his people are seeking him and he pours out his love. And it's like when we first fell in love again. For some of us, you may have grown up in church, and when renewal hits the body of Christ, maybe your love just awakens in a new way. It gets renewed in a powerful way, and something happens inside of you where, like, I just can't get enough of him. That's renewal. That's renewal. Revival is when you're so in love that you tell everyone about it. Ever been around someone when they first fall in love? It's all they talk about, right? I remember when I first met Carrie and we, we first started dating and fell in love. You know, I couldn't have a conversation without saying something like, well, Carrie, or you should see what Carrie says, or Carrie and I. Why? Because I was just so in love. I couldn't help but tell people about her. And if people didn't know Carrie, I would talk about her. And if people did know her, I'd tell her how amazing she was. Revival is when we're so passionate, when the church is so passionately in love of Jesus that we can't help but tell people about it. And we catalyze it and carry him wherever we go. We don't have to do it as far as a preaching is concerned and have a whole message. All we do is it just overflows out of us. It's really cool. And it spreads like wildfire. What God does in us goes viral around the world. Let's look in Scripture where we can see a couple places where this happens, but not exclusively, but we can learn from these. And why don't you turn with me to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we'll see this happen. This is the birthing of the church. This is after Jesus has gone to the cross. It's after he's resurrected. It's after he spent 40 days with his closest followers. And he's been teaching them for 40 days on himself and the kingdom of God. And he's been preparing them for the fact that he was about to go and and to be with his father again. And and in Acts chapter 1, he says, Now, before you do anything else, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to bring the truth of my life. I want you to bring all the teaching and all my works and all the ministry everywhere you go. But before you do that, before you do anything, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for my Holy Spirit to show up. 
So we know that in the upper room, it's a, a gathering of his disciples that began to pray and to wait for the Lord. And this is what takes place in Acts chapter 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and the whole, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Let's go back to last week's. This is about the presence of God. They're all together there. They're all praying. They're all showing up and God shows up with such a violent wind. It probably sounded like a 747 that filled the room that the spiritual atmosphere of that place changed when the presence of God was poured out in a unique way. The whole house was filled with the presence of God. Every place they were. Verse three, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. That's a good prayer meeting. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. Let me break it down for you right now. This is not only a birthing of the church. This was a, a pouring out of God's Spirit that renewed their love. These are people that have been following Jesus. These were people that were committed to following Jesus. These were people that experienced Jesus and loved Jesus. And they're in a place and the Holy Spirit comes and does a work that they couldn't do on their own. Jesus was so committed. He says, don't do anything until this happens. Because Jesus knows that no matter how passionate they were about loving him, without his presence in their life, they were on their own. And so the Holy Spirit gets poured out on them. Now, what takes place is the whole city shows up because of the sound that's taking place. They spill out into the streets. It went from renewal, their heart and experience with the Lord. Now it's pouring out. They are outside of the four walls of the upper room. Now they're out in the city and they are praising God in other languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them. And the whole city shows up and sees what's taking place. And they are amazed. Some people say these people are drunk out of their mind. And other people go, no, I hear them speaking languages that they don't know. And they're speaking it so perfectly that their accent is different than what Galileans would be able to speak in their own language. And in these languages. But they're still puzzled by this because they've never seen it or experienced before. And then Peter gets up and publicly declares what's happening. And he, he's proclaiming the prophets of old and he's telling them about Jesus and he's walking through them and, and you can see what takes place there. And the response is this. Now remember, a few short weeks earlier, this city was filled with the cries of crucify him. These same people that are in the upper room pouring out into the streets, praising God publicly were hiding in secret embarrassed to even admit that they knew Jesus. See what takes place. And again, Peter publicly stands up and proclaims Jesus where a few weeks before he denied three times even knowing him. This is the result. The end of Acts chapter 2, it says they. That means not only this group that was there. By the way, uh, I didn't include this in the passage. Peter preaches a message and three thousand people get saved and give their life to Jesus right there on the spot. So a church is birthed 
from 120 people, they experienced a renewing of the presence of God. It overflows into the, to the, to the city and 3000 people in one day get saved. They follow Jesus. They move from a place where they didn't know or didn't believe in Jesus to now they're committed to follow him. And this is the result. This is a clear work of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That means communing together and hanging out to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That right there is a clear work of the Holy Spirit. Not only the signs and wonders and miracles that took place by the apostles, but the fact that you could gather these people from all over, from every walk of life, from every language group, and bring them together to a place where they were all in common together. That is a clear work of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever tried to work with more than two people? This is a clear move of God. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who has needs. What God had done in their life, in renewing their life, in renewing their, their what they were created for in loving God, spilled out into generosity wherever they went. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the result was this, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is a clear renewal that led to a revival. Do you see this? Daily people were coming to know Jesus. Daily they were praying, they were fellowshipping, they were hanging out. It was a clear move of the Holy Spirit. This is renewal that pours out into revival. Now, I want you to fast forward. We, we looked at this briefly last week. Acts chapter 4. Now, if you're using your Bible in front of you, or if you're using a digital copy, Acts chapter 4 is only like two pages after Acts chapter 2. Everyone get that? And when we read it, we're like, oh, this must be in, you know, like the next week. Maybe, maybe a month later. This is a rough guesstimate, but between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, between the birthing of the church and where we come into Acts chapter 4, is probably close to four years later. Did you get that? So, a move of God changes the city. 3,000 people get saved, and the Lord keeps adding to the number daily those who are being saved. Four years later, we saw and we looked at this last week when Peter and John went to the temple to pray and they healed the guy who had been born uh, lame. And then they get hauled in before the same people that crucified Jesus and they threaten them and they say, knock it off. Shut it down. Stop it. Do you know what we can do to you? And Peter and John get released. We looked at this last week, and it says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they, being the believers, heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. A movement that was birthed in prayer by the presence of God that led to renewal. Now, four years later, they're still praying and saying, Even when it gets bad, we're going to pray. We're going to pray. And see what, you can see what takes place in that. 
In Acts chapter 4, drop down to verse 30. That's what they're praying, and you can look at their prayer. They remember all the things God has done. They praised him for it. Can I just tell you, when you're in a tight spot, start with thanksgiving and remembering how God has shown up in the past. It helps to frame what you're experiencing in the present. And so they do that. And in verse 30, they said this, they conclude their prayer that at least we have written here. And it says this, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Why would they pray this? Because Jesus taught it. Jesus demonstrated it. Jesus commissioned it. In Acts chapter 2, that was the result of God pouring out his spirit, not only in the church, but in the city and around the world. Renewal that led to revival. And you know what they're saying? Let me translate. Do it again. More please. More please. They're hungry. They're hungry for God to show up again. In verse 31, it says this, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't like, it was a pretty good meeting. God rocked the house. No, God rocked the house. You get that? The place was shaken. The presence of God was so palpable and so thick that the earth responded and vibrated under the presence of God. And the result was, look in Acts chapter 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Sound familiar? And spoke the word of God boldly. What was the result? This should sound familiar too. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. A clear result of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit being poured out again. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own but they shared everything they had. Again, what God had renewed in their heart led to another expression of generosity in this way. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. Sound familiar? God shows up and they release it out. And look what happens. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. This is a renewal that leads to revival. Keep going to Acts chapter 5. Verse 12, this is still the result of this move of God, a renewal again that leads to a revival. Verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. This was a large space where all these people could gather and worship and pray in a public way, even though they were just threatened not to do it anymore. Verse 13, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded the people. That seems confusing. Let me give you the context. This is right after a guy named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, lied in front of the whole church in a a way that was very, let's just say, evident. To the point that they were struck dead. I could do a whole message on that encounter, but we're not going to. But let's just say someone lied to the Holy Spirit in front of the whole church and both of them dropped dead. You could see where there may be a little bit of fear going on in the church. And actually outside of the church, they heard of what happened. And it says no one dared join them. And you're kind of like, that is the least, the, the least seeker-friendly thing ever to happen, right? Go to that church. Liars get killed. That's a whole other message. Sorry about that. That's a rabbit chair. I don't want to go down. But even when something like that took place, the move of God 
that renewed their love for Jesus and brought revival. And look at the result. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord Jesus and were added to their number. It's a clear move of God, isn't it? Renewal that leads to revival. Acts chapter 4, they get renewed. The end of Acts chapter 4 and 5, it leads to revival, a change. I want to talk about a powerful misconception. Now, everyone can look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and we're like, that's a clear move of God. Am I right? It's clearly a pouring and outpouring of his Holy Spirit that not only renewed the church again, but spilled out into their culture and into their world, even in the face of persecution and opposition. But here's a powerful misconception that I have had many times. And do we know that misconceptions can be very powerful, right? Our perspective is if it's not accurate in reality, it can affect the way we think and the way we believe and the way we live. And here's one of these powerful misconceptions that I kind of want to just highlight right now because we can look, do this. At least I have done this. And I know others have done this as well. We can look back at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and the rest of the book of Acts and go, that was a clear move of God that God did uniquely and especially to establish his church. But that's not normative experience for the rest of history or at least for our world. Can I say this? I agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer that says the book of Acts is actually normal Christianity. Say that again. What happened in the book of Acts should be normal and is is designed to be the normative experience for followers of Jesus. What we're experiencing is abnormal for the kingdom of God. But let me give you another powerful misconception. It's that as we look back in history, we think that either in places like England or in other places in the world, because we've heard some stories, or even in the birthing of this nation, that there was this pinnacle of the move of Christ, and we've been in steady decline ever since. Can I just tell you, that's not true. What is true is that in the history of the church, and even before that in God's people, there were times when our love for Jesus became so cold and so distant that it looked like all hope had been lost. It's happened before. Do you realize that you know in the 18th century, that England was so dead spiritually, even though they had previously experienced moves of God. It was so dead that guys like Charles Simeon was charged to, to pastor a church in Cambridge, England, where Cambridge College is, that was set up for the preparing of people for ministry, that he's trying to prepare sermons for his church in Cambridge, but he has a hard time doing it because there's so many people outside his window that are having sex publicly. That just woke you up. That Cambridge University at the time had to have, you know, you, you'll see at Cambridge, the old doors are so thick. One of the reasons why is because there was so much violence on the campus that people were busting into people's dorm rooms and living situations and either stealing all their stuff and beating them up or killing them. There were riots regularly at the time where many college students were being killed by other college students. 
Charles Simeon started preaching the simple message of loving Jesus Christ. And his elders so welcomed it that they actually locked the doors and locked him out of his own church. Talk about persecution. But it didn't deter him. So he started meeting at night and started meeting in other places. And God started to move. And a move of God started to take place in Cambridge again. Charles Simeon was a catalyst but it was a clear work of God that started moving it again and changed it. You can read some of that stuff. You can even think about the situation. Some of you know the name John and Charles Wesley that God used not only in England, but even here, they birthed the Methodist movement, not as we know it today, but as a powerful move of God. But do you realize that John Wesley was part of the Anglican church, the church of England, and the church of England had come into such decline that at Westminster Abbey, which we know because of the royal weddings that we see taking place, this royal hall, which was the, this, the, the seatbed of the Anglican church, the church of England, that at the time at Easter at Westminster Abbey, they had less than 10 people show up. But God chose to use catalysts who would say yes and respond. God has always shown up in the most remarkable ways when catalysts start seeking his face again. Many people believe that our country was always a Christian nation, always in love with Jesus, always full. The churches were always full because of our founding by pilgrims who started our nation with a prayer meeting. But that isn't necessarily true. Our church history, our nation's history, is that we have seen times of death and decline even within the church. God always uses spiritual catalysts to spark renewal and revival. You talk a lot about history, and I have, I have a lot of history here that we could talk about in our nation. At the time of the first and the second great awakening, things spiritually, morally, politically were in really bad shape in our nation. But I want to focus on one particular move of God and then try to lay in the plane. In 1857, Again, we often think, oh, the 1800s, the glory days of the church. I'm sure there were churches full everywhere, that God was always on the move, that people were very moral, people were very, uh, you know, upright and righteous in the way. And it's only been in the last 20 or 30 years that things have gotten really pear-shaped. And I tell you, in 1857, the nation was in serious, serious trouble. Although in 1857, we had been thriving in our resources and financially. Our nation was totally divided in many different ways. Morally, we were in serious decline. The condition of our country in 1857 is that we were unbelievably politically divided. Unbelievably politically divided and corrupt in many different ways. We were... Uh, The church was in radical decline. For decades, the church had every denomination had seen their attendance continue to drop to the point where churches were closing the doors regularly and even denominations were trying to come up with plans for what they would do when they were no longer in existence. People that didn't believe in God were were shouting and proclaiming, we are so close to the end of of the church in our generation that Christianity will be dead within a matter of decades.
We were on the verge of war. Not only were we politically divided in an amazing way, we were racially divided in incredible ways. The issue of slavery was literally splitting our country. Morally, it was really bad. And not only racial tensions between the North and the South, between uh, whites and African slaves were bad, but Many of you, and I'm not condoning you to go watch this movie as an illustration of this message, but some of you will know Martin Scorsese's movie, The Gangs of New York, and the racial tribalism that was taking place in New York City is a pretty accurate description of what was taking place in 1857, in the 1850s, including that politicians were so corrupt. I'm gonna, well, I'm not going to go there, but let's just say it was bad. And then in September of 1857, These same streets that were soaked with the blood of gang violence and wars, where immorality was rampant, poverty was rampant all over the place. Corruption was normative at the time. There was a prayer meeting that started by a guy named Jeremiah Lampfear. Now, let me tell you part of that story. Jeremiah Lampfear was a businessman, and he loved God, and he was hungry for the move of God, and he took a horse and buggy all the way up to Boston to hear a guy named Charles Finney preach. Some of you remember me talking about Charles Finney last week. But even before that, Jeremiah Lamphere went all the way to South Carolina as a, as a northerner because he had heard about a move of God that was taking place mostly among the, the, uh, the slaves in America where the Spirit of God was being poured out. And a church of 100 people became a church of 1,500 people very quickly. Renewal that led to revival. Jeremiah Lamphere went there as a businessman to see what God was doing. He was so impacted by that. He had been, and remember, you catalyze what you carry. And he'd experienced the presence of God and a move of God. And he came back to New York and someone, I don't know who it was, someone asked him to, that he should start a prayer meeting on Fulton Street, the business district of New York. And so it was supposed to be a weekly prayer meeting. And Jeremiah Lamphere was passionate about this. And as a businessman, he spent his own money and printed up 20,000 flyers that he distributed all throughout New York City. 20,000 flyers. That's a lot in our time. And especially then when the, 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 the population of New York was far lesser than it is right now. 20,000 flyers. Guess how many people showed up to the first prayer meeting? Six. Six. But then six became 12. And then six became 20. And a weekly prayer meeting within one year went from six people praying weekly to between six and 10,000 people praying daily within New York. They were praying three times a day. Churches were at capacity. There was a reporter that was sent out by the newspaper. This would be a great thing for newspapers to have to report. That in one hour, he, from 12 to 1, he tried to hit as many prayer meetings in New York as he could. He could only get to 12, and he counted 6,000 people praying at lunchtime. This prayer revival spread. This prayer revival that was largely nameless and faceless without you know, public heroes presenting it in this way. This prayer movement so spread powerfully that it went from New York to Boston to Cleveland to St. Louis to Chicago. It spread up into Canada. 
It spread across the ocean into England to the point that within a year, God had so powerfully moved that in our nation's history, that within that one year, over a million people were added to the recorded membership of the church in America during that time. That doesn't include people who made powerful decisions, but didn't sign some kind of membership within a local church. Over a million people within one year. That is a clear move of God. Let me break it down. There was at one point during this one year revival that spread to about 40 years. We could get there. Within that one year period, it was counted regularly in the middle of the year that 20,000 people a week were getting baptized. God was on the move. And he wasn't just doing it in one denomination or in one flavor of church. It was happening all over the place. People were so committed to experiencing the presence and the power of God that when the renewal led to revival, they had to cut holes in the frozen uh, uh, Hudson River to baptize people. Think about how committed you'd have to be. This revival touched and reached over 50 different nations. Spurgeon, a name you know, was deeply affected by the revival in in London and in his church. Seminaries were at their fullest capacity than ever before. A missionary movement was born, and a student missionary movement. This, This revival had touched every generation, but especially among young people. There were young people who say, I am willing to go to the ends of the earth. They got trained, they got launched, they got sent out, and a worldwide missions movement began. Some of you will know the name D.L. Moody, who lived in Chicago and was a, was the Billy Graham of that era. Billy Graham, uh, D.L. Moody, his life was changed by the, what happened. And at the end of Moody's life, after he'd seen tens of thousands of people come to know Jesus through his evangelistic ministry, looked back at the years of 1857 and 858 and just marveled at what God has done. And over 40 years after that, he said, I've never seen a move of God like we did in 57 and 58. And for at least the next 40 years, it spread and grew and impacted the nation. There's a lot more I could say about that. But I have to land this plane. It's time again. The time when we're racially and politically divided. The time when we're seeing church attendance and membership decline in America like never before. It's time when a millennial generation is being polled and most of them have rejected faith, are walking away from the church, and even the ones who are saying, I'm cool with Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with his people. They're becoming nomads. Well, right now in the millennial generation, only 11% of them are what we are defined as resilient disciples that are passionately pursuing and seeking Jesus. And I look at that and go, oh my God, 
And I mean that in a powerful way, not in a profane way. God, that's horrible. 11%. And you know what I look back? I look back in church history and say, 11%. Even sociologists say it only takes 10% to change everything. We've got 1% more than sociologists say we need. And even if that weren't good enough news, the scripture and church history is filled with stories to say when it was the darkest, God showed up. And it's time again. It's time again. And can I say this? Wellspring, the Lord is looking for just a couple catalysts who will say yes to everything the Lord is being, is asking them to do. He's looking for Jeremiah Lamphere's who don't have seminary degrees, who don't have positions. They're just willing to go, I'll start a prayer meeting. And if six people show up, I'll be there. And if one person shows up and his name is Jesus, I'll be there. And I'll pray in my closet. And I'll pray for our nation. And I'll pray for our political leaders. And I'll stop doing what Kevin did yesterday, watching the impeachment trials and yelling at the TV. (laughs) You have no idea where I stand politically, but I stand this way. If the King Jesus doesn't show up, we're in serious trouble. And if the people of God don't rise up by bowing down. It won't happen. And the battles we're unwilling to fight on our knees will be the battles that our kids will inherit. And I can't look at the millennial generation or the Zoomer generation with a a pointed finger. I've got to look in the mirror and say, Jesus, start here. Start now. I need a renewal. I need my heart to be touched by the love of God and the fire of God again in such a powerful way that I catalyze what I carry. It's the presence of God. It's the person of Jesus. That's all I got. That's all you got. That's all we have. And if we think we have more to offer than Jesus, we're in trouble. Let me say that again. If we think we have anything more to offer the world than Jesus, we're in trouble. He's the hope of the world. He's the answer to our nation's problems. He's the answer to our world's issues. And he always has been. The early church knew that even when everything was against them, Jesus was their only hope for their world. Wellspring, the Lord is looking for catalysts who say, I want to see renewal and revival spread to the globe. And I'm not in charge of seeing where it goes around the world, but I want it to start in my heart and spread to my world that he's put me in. Would you stand with me?
Just close your eyes for a second. Holy Spirit, would you come and move again? Move at Wellspring again. We thank you for all the times, all the places, and all the secret prayer gatherings, and all the public meetings, all the conferences, and all the events, and all the Wednesday nights at youth groups and Sunday morning that you've shown up. And we say thank you. But Lord, we ask that you would pour out your spirit in an unusual way, in an amazing way, in what is normal in heaven would become our normal here on earth. And Lord, you'd so transform our hearts. You'd so transform our hearts that we're so in love with you, that we are on fire for you, God, that our strategy is simple. We take what we carry and bring it everywhere we go. And we pray that God would move. And even as Rick reminded us weeks ago, that in a season of rain, we pray for rain. Well, God, it feels like a drought right now. But we ask for rain, and when we feel the rain, we want, to, we want to hunger for more, God. We thank you for the last 21 days. We thank you for the last 24 hours. And Lord, we say thank you for what you've done. But God, we want more. You are the one who's dreaming about more. Would you put those dreams inside of us? You're the one who feels the, ang- the, the, the agony and pain of people who don't know you yet. You're the one who says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. I will forgive them of their sin and move again. Can I encourage you to pray a simple yet powerful prayer? I encourage you to pray it out loud. Do it again. Start in me. That's the prayer. Do it again. Start in me. Yeah. God, I want to be a walking billboard for personal spiritual renewal. Do it again, God. Do it again, God. Wellspring, we are catalysts of spiritual renewal and revival. Our only hope is him. And our only strategy is what it's always been. Come, Lord. Come again. Maranatha, come again. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Lord, I pray that 
the next 21 days would be even greater. Father, I thank you, but I ask that the next 21 years would be better than we can ask or imagine or think. I want to pray for, you're going to hear more about this in the weeks and months ahead, but Lord, I ask for Connecticut praise, this initiative to say, Lord, do it here. Do it again. God, I ask that you would unite hearts and unite churches. You would unite us together that the things that have divided us for years, Lord Jesus, would fall to the ground, Lord Jesus, as we look to you, we turn our eyes to you and say, do it again, Jesus. Would you unite our hearts together in such a powerful way? There is no political force. There is no social force. There is nothing that the gates of hell can do to stop a church that's passionately pursuing Jesus. Do it again. I don't want to miss what the Lord is doing, but I, I feel like we're, we're meant to respond in some way and give an opportunity to respond to the Lord, not to, to me. If you need to pick up your children, you can go do that. You can even bring them back in here if you want to do that as well. But I want to, I want to pray for us and I want to release a blessing over us. But then at that point, I would love, if you want to be a catalyst of spiritual renewal or revival, if you want to be like a Jeremiah Lamphere who, who goes, I'll do whatever, I just want to say yes. And if you go, I don't know if it's starting a public prayer meeting. Maybe it's starting my own personal prayer meeting in my prayer class. If you want to just say yes again to the Lord and ask him to start with you. And at some point, as I, after I dismiss this, if you just want to come forward to the altar and to kneel down and just say, I give you permission. I surrender to what you want to do. Use me, catalyze me in a powerful way. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Why don't you put your hand on someone's shoulder next to you? I just want to release a blessing over us. If you need to go, go with blessing. Carrie's just going to, she's hearing the Lord say something that really resounds in my spirit. And uh, yeah. Um, You turned it off. Uh, I just, as Kevin started speaking uh, earlier, uh, the Holy Spirit started whispering this phrase. Inside, outside, upside down. Um, and it just, he keeps saying it to me over and over and repeating it. So I'll pay attention. Inside, outside, upside down. And when we refer to the upside down, a lot of times we talk about the upside downness of the kingdom of God, that it looks different 
um, very upside down to what I would do. Um, when Kevin and I moved here in 2015, we moved into the parsonage. And two days after we moved into the parsonage, I had this open vision. And I've never, I don't fully understand this vision. Um, but today, I think I understand it a little bit more than I, than I ever have. Um, I saw the hand of the Lord come down and pull Wellspring up by, um, out from its roots, turn it upside down, shake it, and stake it in the ground by the cross that's on top of um, the steeple. Um, and I had to go outside of the house because I wasn't really familiar with what the church looked like, and I didn't even know if there was a cross on top of the steeple. You know, so I kind of went outside to check, like, oh, yeah, there, that's um, what I'm seeing is real. Um, so um, and I think we've been experiencing a shaking. He's been shaking us. And when he staked the church on the cross, the doors opened and people fell out. People got hurt. But after a, a period of time, there, was, there, were, there were entryways in which people could access um, the church that weren't there before. So shake me inside. (laughs) Send me outside. Turn this place upside down, God. And we're so thankful for what you've done in the past. But we are rooted and established in the cross and what Jesus has done. And he's shaking, he's shaking us, and he's shaking the ground. Like he did in Acts 2. He's been shaking us. So, Lord, we say yes and amen to all that you're doing, Father. Carrie doesn't know this, but when I was in worship before I got up to speak, I heard in and out. She got a fuller thing because she's probably listening better. But So Lord, we ask that inside and outside, that you would turn us upside down until we are in perfect alignment with what heaven says. And in surrender to you, Lord. So I just want to bless you with that. May the Lord work in you. May the Lord work on you. May the Lord shake you until everything that is not him falls out, till we're turned upside down and planted firmly on the cross of Jesus Christ. To him be all glory and honor forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.